I hit the lights and siren, pulled up into the parking lot, stole about 10 bags of ice. Now, I did get an ambulance stuck in a post office drive through one time. All right, students, welcome back to the EMSTUD podcast. This is your EMED coach, Dr. Scott Wieters, coming to you with another hot episode from the EMSTUD podcast. You know, our goals are to make sure that you can see your vision and achieve your goals to become an emergency physician. And so we want to give you the most up-to-date information, the best resources, introduce you to the minds and thinkers of our specialty that can help you envision your role as an emergency physician. One of the cool things we love doing is showing you that emergency medicine is so much more than beyond the walls of our emergency department. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love resuscitating the sick patient. I love taking care of our patients in the emergency department. But the real vision of emergency medicine is so much more broad. And so our series on what I want to be when I grow up focuses on introducing you to some of these thought leaders and experts in their niche that do things outside of the walls of our emergency department and that have their own specialty. So today we've got such a superhero. I'm really thankful that our good friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Taylor Ratcliffe, has joined our conversation today. So I'll let Dr. Ratcliffe introduce himself. So Taylor, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to uh, participate. And, you know, it's pretty awesome that you are doing this because I agree. Emergency medicine is such a cool discipline where we do have a cool job uh, that we do every day, but there's so many different exciting things that you can bracket onto emergency medicine. So, uh, yeah, I guess about me, and I I hate talking about myself, but um, I'm I'm currently a practicing emergency physician, and uh, I have the pleasure of working with you. We work in Temple, Texas as part of the Texas A&M Health Sciences Center Residency Program, part of Baylor Scott Wine Health. And uh, actually, you trained me. So, you know, all the good habits that I have come from your teaching, right? <laughs> so Too kind. the other, oh, well, no, you deserve it. The other things that, uh, that I get to do is I have the pleasure of being our uh, EMS faculty liaison. And really what that means is that I get to expose resident physicians and medical students to the field of pre-hospital medicine. And the name kind of says it all, right? Pre-hospital medicine means before you get to the hospital. So I have the privilege to get to work with about six or seven different EMS agencies, first responder groups, disaster groups, educational programs that provide uh, emergency medical services to our different communities that we serve. And so, again, part of my job is I get to come work and do shifts in the ER, you know, alongside you and, and our colleagues. And then again, I get to go out and work with our public safety partners in the pre-hospital environment. Well, that, that says it all. I mean, uh, you wear a lot of different hats. You do a lot of cool things. I mean, work side by side in the emergency department, taking care of patients. And then there's so much that goes on, kind of like you said, behind the scenes before the patient gets to the emergency department. So, I mean, tell me a story about how you became interested in, in this niche that you have and, and what really led you to pursue in this, this role. You know, it's, um, Scott, it's a weird story. So, uh, actually, this all happened in high school. I guess, I guess I don't want to go too far back, but I was kind of a sick kid growing up. I had bad asthma, and I was in the emergency room quite often. And, you know, even though they poked me with needles a lot, um, they made me feel better. And so I, I always kind of wanted to be a healthcare provider. I, th- I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And so this, this persisted all the way through high school, and, and actually it was a United Way thing. It was a career day, and they said, hey, who do you want to shadow as a career opportunity? And I said what every kid at the time says, I want to shadow a trauma surgeon, right? I mean, maybe not. I think that was actually sick or something. But 
they uh, looked around and guess what? Not many trauma surgeons wanted to have a 15 year old kid tag along, but they said, Hey, we found this, this EMS crew. Do you want to go hang out with these two paramedics? And I said, well, yeah, I'm kind of disappointed, but, but sure. And so I rode one shift as a, as a high school student with them. And Scott, it was crazy. We had a traumatic cardiac arrest. We had STEMIs. We had, you know, all, all the things, including just the, you know, the lift assist calls. And I watched how these guys um, really kind of battled the elements and how they were doing healthcare in this really austere setting. And I thought, man, this is what I want to do. And, and then luck had it that the guy that I was riding with, a guy named Alvin Chapman, uh, he was running the medical explorer post for high school students. And so I said, Alvin, I really want to do this. How do I do this? And he said, Taylor, it's easy. You just start showing up and you're part of our Explorer post. So that led to me going to paramedic school and everything else and really derailed me from getting back to medical school for about 10 years. But it showed me what I wanted to do. It showed me that I did want to get back into medicine. I wanted to become a physician to create change. But at the same time, I wanted to still figure out how to work with EMS. And so it was the perfect combination. And that's really cool. I don't think I've ever heard that story from you. That's uh, I get to know a, a deeper layer of that, which is Taylor Ratcliffe. That's so cool. Um, it gets scarier you know, the deeper you go. <laughs> oh, man. So, uh, you know, nobody gets to where they are without mentors. Um, tell us about maybe some of your mentors that really helped you to take you to a place you wouldn't have gone on your own and, and maybe uh, embodied what you felt like you wanted to become when you grew up. Tell us about those people. You know, I, I really, there's, of course, been a lot of good people in my life, you know, all the way from, uh, you know, my parents to my Christian upbringing. But really, if we're going to talk about the job, right, about the job and what I do today, um, two people really stick out in my mind. And, and the first the first guy was my very first EMS medical director. And this gentleman, uh, he, he died not too long ago, but his name was Dr. Fred Hagedorn. And uh, Fred grew up in California. He trained in one of the first emergency medicine programs, and he made his way somehow to Lubbock, Texas, and that's actually where I grew up. Uh, And he was my first medical director, and he was this awesome combination of a friend, a teacher, and uh, a disciplinarian when he had to be. You know, I mean, I was a 21-year-old kid with uh, a lot of responsibility in my hands for people's lives. And, you know, he taught me a lot. He corrected me when I need to be corrected, and he gave me the tools that I needed to be a good paramedic at the time. And I watched. He was, you know, nurturing and kind yet stern when necessary. And so I took a lot away from him. And a lot of what I do, a lot of my current style and how I work with my providers now comes from, comes from Fred. Uh, another name that you probably know is Dr. Ed Rocked. And uh, Ed Rock actually wound up being one of my mentors in my undergraduate work. A friend connected us together, and he was the medical director of Austin Travis County EMS at the time. And for those that don't know, if you rewind about, you know, 10 or 15 years, maybe 20, and you look at the preeminent pre-hospital EMS agencies in the United States, there's lots of good ones. Um, and, you know, I'm blanking on what's the name right now, but... Uh, uh, you know, Seattle, uh, Nashville, places like that, Florida. But Ed Rocked was part of an amazing team uh, in, in a very renowned Austin Travis County EMS system. He was extremely progressive, uh, extremely forward-thinking in, in physician field response, technology, all these different things. And he got to be my mentor, and that was absolutely fantastic. Uh, he has 
taught me an amazing amount about pre-hospital medicine, and uh, he is still on the job today. He's left off Austin Travis County EMS. He's now the chief medical officer for Global Medical Response, GMR, uh, which is a rebranded version of the largest private EMS agency in the United States, uh, previously known as American Medical Response. So uh, I get to work under him a little bit. Those are some of our contracts that we serve. And, and you know, I get to still bounce things off of him and ask him questions when uh, I don't know the way forward. Man, that's cool. I don't think any of us would, uh, would, would be the same without the people that helped us uh, through those times in life. Those are cool stories, man. Agreed. It makes me wonder, you know, a 21-year-old paramedic uh, needing discipline. How, how fast have you taken an ambulance before? What's your record? What's your PR? Um, let's see, this is going to be listened to publicly, right? (laughs) Uh, The answer is 10 miles over the posted speed limit. No more, no less. Okay. All right. Okay. By the book. All right. Now I did get an ambulance stuck in a post office drive-thru one time. (laughs) Tell us about that. What happened? Well, it's kind of a long story, but you know, um, when somebody bets you to do something, you just have to do it, Right. And so everybody's been in front of a post office. You know the little drive-through where you drop your mail off, you put your letters in. Well, my partner said, I bet you won't drive through the drive-through post office. And I said, watch me, buddy. <laughs> and uh, I'll make a long story short. We cleared everything, all the little metal barricades, but there's always that really big stop sign posted about eight feet tall in the air before you pull out. And uh, that may or may not have got caught on the side of the ambulance. That is awesome. Oh, I can envision it right now. <laughs> oh man! So, tell me, tell me why you really love this role. Um, what, what's the best part of being an EMS medical director and, and things? What, what do you really get out of your job that you love it so much? Well, uh, you know, Weeders, I'm gonna I'm gonna link it back to something that I think you feel too, because you and I have talked about it, and it's and it's a cool thing that goes hand in hand with emergency medicine. Um, not to put you on the spot, but do you know how many classes of residents you've trained so far in your career? Nine. Okay. And then see, I think I'm, I think I'm seven now. Right. And so it's cool if you, you know, yeah, you think each one of those classes had 10 to 14 people in it. And so we've trained hundreds of doctors that have gone out and they're taking care of thousands of people across the United States. And I guess if you and I train them well, hopefully they're doing a good job. And I don't know, you know, you're really good at your job, so hopefully we do okay. But um, the neat thing about EMS is it's the same. So that same opportunity to be a force multiplier. Uh, I don't know an exact number right now. I probably should. But I would guess that I have about 400 paramedics and about um, maybe 800 uh, EMTs working under my license right now. And, and the cool thing is that I get to impart some knowledge to them. I get to write treatment protocols for them. I get to train and educate them. And then they go out and they do a great job taking care of people who are sick and critically injured. And, and it's an amazing way for us to be able to take our skills and abilities and multiply it. So, you know, that's, that's one component, uh, Scott. But then, you know, the other thing is... I, I really still enjoy getting out and running calls. I mean, the ER can be unpredictable, and you know it can be a scary place. But, uh, you know, for our listeners who have never gone out into the pre-hospital environment, I'll tell you, the thing that I hear from our resident physicians who are, you know, battle-hardened in the ER, when they get out in the field and they see what it's like, they say, wow, this is really raw. This is really raw. EMS does a great job of making things a little bit better before the patients get to us. 
And, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. There's challenges in the environment. It might be a rescue scene that we're having to use the jaws of life. It might be, you know, a patient high on LSD or meth or whatever that we have to safely um, contain and bring to the hospital. You know, it's, it's just that, that dynamic that I still love so much. And, and that's what's great about my job is I get to kind of go do it when I want to. And at the same time, it has the added benefit of bringing good morale to the crews that I work with. And I usually get to teach a little bit while I'm out doing that. So it's a win-win-win. Man, that's a, that's a beautiful story. I love that. love the way it sounds. I mean, uh, really touching a lot of different people, uh, impacting society, expanding emergency medicine, mentoring, teaching. That's a, that's a cool thing, man. And I can tell that you love that job every day I see you. That I smile. Do. Um, so let's explain to our students. So what if they want to be like you? What type of training did you need in order to, to get into this role? Oh, gosh, things have changed so much from even from the time when I decided to take this journey. So, you know, for our for our audience, um, they most of them understand that they're going to go ahead and pursue primary board certification, you know, in whatever discipline they're going to find. Obviously, I think we're trying to tell them how great emergency medicine is, but, you know, who knows? They may decide on anesthesiology, family medicine, internal medicine, whatever. It, we'll delete that from the uh, show notes, by the way. Yeah, 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 that's right. We'll edit. Um, but, <laughs> you know, the, the bottom line, Scott, is it used to be that if you wanted to do pre-hospital medicine as an EMS medical director and you wanted to go anywhere of any size, uh, you know, there's always a role for this in our small rural communities regardless. But if you wanted to go to Chicago, if you wanted to do this in New York, L.A., wherever, then, then you were going to have to have a background and training in emergency medicine. That was kind of the door. That was the doorway because the skill set between what our EMS partners do and what we do is so similar. And then along comes board certification in EMS. So I think when I started in emergency medicine, you know, they had the usual stuff, right? You could do critical care, you could do a piece of specialty, you could do ultrasound, you could do toxicology, right? But EMS was not an established uh, board. But then about four, don't quote me, four or five years ago, uh, they, uh, ABM actually announced that, you know, EMS is now a true subspecialty exam. So the interesting thing there is that, and again, you can edit this too, you don't actually have to be boarded in emergency medicine uh, to take the EMS subspecialty exam. But what you do have to have is you do have to have uh, an appropriate amount of experience. You have to have the correct training. And I'll tell you, even with, uh, let's see, I got my paramedic when I was 19, I think, and I won't tell you how old I am now, but it's more than 20 years of practice uh, even between my emergency medicine training and my EMS background, that board exam was hard. And so, you know, our listeners are going to now have to think, hey, if I want to go get one of these jobs and work in a large city, um, I'm probably going to need to do the EMS uh, subspecialty boards. And, and again, they're no, they're no joke. They're no joke. But there are multiple pathways that you can come to to do it. Uh, you know, but I'm biased. Like, you, hey, we think emergency medicine is the best way, right? Of course. So what is a, what's a real typical day or shift look like for you? Give us an example of what a typical day in the life of Dr. Ratcliffe is. Well, you know, it might be better to actually ask the residents. And if you ask the residents, you know, some of them are going to say it's exciting and amazing. And others of them are going to say that I do nothing but go to meetings. And, uh, you know, you, you have some significant administrative responsibilities now. And, I mean, I think you understand the meeting dilemma, right? Oh, we've been Zooming. We've been Zooming and meeting and teaming and WebExing and, yes, all these things. Yes. 
and, and the funny thing is, you know, my, my business in, in the pre-hospital environment is no different. Um, it's important just like for any leader of any team that you have to, you have to show up, right? Showing up is half the battle. And as you said, right now we're showing up virtually, but, uh, you know, we're showing up. So, um, you know, part of my day is going to be meetings and I'm meeting with, I'm meeting with agency, uh, fire chiefs. I'm meeting with, uh, public health colleagues. I'm meeting with county commissioners and judges. You know, we're meeting with everybody that gets affected by the pre-hospital health system. And, uh, you know, it can be, again, is it, is it a contracting issue? And we're advising them on what a good ambulance contract looks like. Or are we advising the county judge on what we think uh, is going to be best to try and make sure that, uh, you know, our EMS providers are safe running coronavirus calls? Uh, you know, really the, the reaches of what we do is so far um, emergency physicians and EMS physicians even get put in a position to actually advise our 911 communication centers. So I have meetings with them. We've been developing screening questions that the 911 operator even starts asking the minute you pick up the telephone, again, to try and help, uh, one, give pre-arrival instructions to save lives, and then, two, also screening currently for coronavirus to help keep our, our EMS providers safe. Um, so, you know, lots of meetings. And then the other thing is I get to do a lot of education. I, I generally speaking, at minimum, touch each one of my agencies and do targeted education with them in person one to two times a month. And this is in addition to all the in-house training that they do themselves, but they really like having doctors come teach them. They really do. They, they feel like we know what we're talking about. They respect our opinion. Uh, and, uh, you know, we owe it to them to be current, well-educated, and, and they pick up on that. And then, you know, again, the last part that I really enjoy is I get to do field response. I can read all the medical charts that I want um, and really try and see how good the, the EMS crews are doing with their care and treatment. But there's nothing, there's no substitute for going and physically watching them do their job. Uh, I, I sometimes make it very apparent that I'm out and about working in the system that day. Sometimes I'll even go ride on the ambulance as one of the crew members. I have my own personal response vehicle. It's got, you know, light and siren and all that. And so sometimes I go in what I call ninja mode. That's that Bugatti that's in the doctor's lot, right? Yeah, I traded it in on, on, on a Lambo. You know, the maintenance is hard. Uh, oh, good move, good move. Yeah, yeah, it just wasn't fast enough, but... So, no, it's, it's funny. Uh, actually, it's a really clunky Ford Expedition, Scott, but thanks for making it sound um, sexy. So, but no, sometimes I go in ninja mode, and, you know, I, sometimes I will, I will intentionally show up five or six minutes behind the crew, uh, and I sneak up, and I just kind of listen, and I see what they're doing, and I see, even on these minor calls, even just a sick call or a fall or a lift assist, you know, are they being compassionate? Are they being nice? Are they really trying to figure out what the patient's needs are and advocating for them. Uh, just like us in the ER, you know, EMS crews are part, uh, part physician, part nurse, part social worker, part psychologist. And so it's great for me, me to be able to watch them and really see what a great job they're doing. And that's cool. And you also, um, you, you do some other crazy stuff with disaster medicine and relief efforts and Every time I talk to you, you're either headed somewhere or coming back from somewhere or going to hot zones. So tell us about some of those, uh, you know, quote, paid vacations you get to take to some areas. Tell us about one of those. <laughs> you, you know, that's a really fun. Well, I, I guess we should go ahead and get this out of the way, right? If, if we're excited about something, that probably means somebody's not having a good day, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to say it, yeah. 
you know, I mean, it's just the nature of our job. It's what we do. I mean, you know, we, we all have walked out of a good resuscitation and we got to return to circulation. We all high five and go, team, you did really great. You know, it doesn't mean we don't, we're not sad that our patient has something wrong with them, but we knew we were there to take good care of them. So um, disaster and emergency management goes hand in hand with emergency medicine too. And, and that's another really fun thing that I get to do. So Texas developed this novel concept about 10 years ago. We have regionalized into eight regions in our state what we call emergency medical task forces. And it's kind of like, oh gosh, I'm going to use like an old reference. Um, I guess maybe I'll go with Power Rangers, right? Maybe our audience uh, used Power Rangers or played with those. But, you know, they can all do their own thing, but then they all come together to form, I don't know what it's called, the Super Power Ranger guy. Uh, so it's that's what our teams can do. We can all operate independently or we can coalesce together for large missions. Uh, our, our biggest deployment to date, at least since I've been involved uh, as the medical director of Team 7, is Hurricane Harvey. So we, uh, uh, you, you guys were nice enough to hold down the home front back in Temple in the ER and let me go deploy for a while. And we took a team of people and coalesced with a bunch of our other emergency management and EMTF colleagues uh, you know, we, we started out in San Antonio and staged there waiting for the hurricane to make landfall. And uh, if anybody researched Hurricane Harvey, you know, it didn't act like a normal hurricane. It it floated up and down the coast, Texas coast, for days and days and dumped more rain than anybody ever thought possible. Uh, so, you know, our, our mission, we're kind of like an acute care forward deployed emergency department. And so it was cool. We have teams of doctors, nurses, paramedics, logistics people, uh, we have, you know, all of our disaster supplies were mobile, were self-contained. They were even putting us on helicopters and flying us to waterlocked areas where people needed medical care when we were setting up hospitals. Uh, just a really cool experience. And, and, you know, for our audience, it's something that they can definitely get into as well. And uh, they can, you know, they can, they can hit us up later with questions on that. But uh, uh, there's, there's room for all people in that kind of disaster response, medical students, residents, physicians, everybody. Uh, the other interesting thing that we did recently, and I guess I can talk about it now uh, since um, we can talk about the coronavirus. Or, oh, wait, that's all we talk about is the coronavirus. <laughs> Don't forget, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, you, you noticed I, I sort of disappeared for about a week back in February, and uh, nobody knew where I was. And, and if you think back to where the coronavirus out, outbreak was back in February, um, the United States was still sort of toying with the notion that we might be able to actually contain the virus in the United States. Seems a little crazy now where we are today, but at that yeah, point... Swing and a miss. Yeah. yeah, you know, you hit a few, you miss a few. Um, our, team, our team has a component that is a state infectious disease response unit, and we're trained to go deal with the uh, hospital-based management and then transportation of patients with a high-consequence infectious disease. And y'all know the definition of that. It's something that's highly pathogenic and highly communicable. You know, thank Ebola. That's sort of the prototypic one. Uh, but we actually got to go um, take over a hospital wing down in the San Antonio area. It was not being used. We had to basically bring it up to standard and code in about 24 hours' time and have it ready to take care of about 20 people who had been brought stateside who were uh, confirmed positive for the coronavirus. And, you know, looking back on it, it wasn't, all that scary, but in February, we didn't know a whole lot about what the virus did. And so all of us were pretty, pretty nervous, you know, is a good word, a little apprehensive. 
Uh, but, you know, the training was great. The equipment that we had was great. None of our team members got sick, and we provided good care for those uh, 20 people or so until they got to go back to their homes or other places. Well, that's cool. I know, I know you always bring back lessons and set up disaster preparedness exercises for our whole hospital, and we get involved, and it's moulaged, and it's, it's crazy, and it's fun. And, um, yeah, no, it's just really cool to kind of get a small view into what your life is like. I mean, we kind of live vicariously through a lot of your adventures, so you're kind of like the Indiana Jones of our, of our group, man. Uh, but we, uh, we celebrate that. That's pretty cool. Um, no, so closing up. What, uh, what advice would you have for some of our students if they want to be like you when they grow up? How can a student become an EMS director? What advice at this stage would you offer them? The, you know, those are really, that's a good question, Scott. I don't, you know, there's not one magic formula or recipe, um, but there are some fundamental things that, that they need to do. And one is find out, you've got to find out if you like EMS or not. Uh, you know, certainly out of a class every year of 14 residents that we train, the majority of them don't really have a primary interest in EMS. They understand that, you know, it's an important referral service for us and they need to be nice to them, but, you know, maybe one or two are going to really have a passion. So I would say start seeking out opportunities where you can get out in the pre-hospital environment. As a medical student, it's pretty easy to do. You can you can probably find electives or other rotations where you can get out on an ambulance. You can uh, work with some EMS medical directors affiliated with your faculty or institution. Uh, you know, and then that's going to lead to point number two: is find somebody who can be a mentor and uh, help begin to expose you to the things that you're going to want to learn and see for a uh, future career in pre-hospital medicine. And then the last thing, of course, is just, you know, get through with your training, right? Uh, You need to, and I think this happened to me, coming in as an intern, I just had EMS still on the brain, and I had to really reset and focus on learning how to be an emergency physician first. And then, of course, it it gave way to these other opportunities that I've had. So, you know, get that base training established, and that way you can work on considering a fellowship if you want to do a fellowship, which, you know, really is required now for board certification, which, again, if you want to go somewhere big, it's going to be necessary. But lots of good EMS physicians out there, lots of young EMS physicians who did what I did, did EMS first and then migrated into this. So we're, we're ready to help uh, pay it back to the, to the young, young generation. So, Dr. Ratcliffe, why don't you bring us home with a story that day when things worked well, uh, the teaching went well, the, the paramedics followed the protocols that were written, the uh, system worked, and the patient had a good outcome. Because at the end of the day, I mean, that's really what we're about, is improving the lives of our patients in their worst day. So do you have any stories about maybe a good day on the job? Yeah, I think, and gosh, it's hard to pick one, Dr. Weeders. I, I, the, the, the wonderful thing about getting to do what I do is, is thankfully, there are quite a few of these stories. But Here's a recent one that, that is actually pertinent for our listening audience right now to make sure that they're looking out for. Uh, so, you know, again, I told you I grew up in Lubbock. If you've never been to Lubbock, it's very hot, but it's very dry. So people have to try really hard to have heat stroke in Lubbock, Texas. But in central Texas, it's one of the hottest places on earth. It's like the armpit of the universe, but it's a nice place. It doesn't smell like an armpit. So... I had the privilege of getting to help 
um, with a uh, with a recent marathon, uh, you know, and they were showing me what they were doing to treat patients for exertional heat stroke. And, you know, if you read in the literature about a little bit of this, the best treatment for exertional heat stroke, the fastest way to cool people is full body ice water immersion, right? And, you know, if we take an honest look in the hospital at how we cool patients, we're not exactly set up to do that. It's, it's a little challenging. It's something about, I don't know, our, our EVS staff doesn't want us dumping 100 gallons of water all over the floor. So, you know, we talk about the education. So last year, before it got hot, I spent a lot of time in all my different agencies talking about heat stroke mitigation and really, really, really trying to convince them that the right thing to do for the patient was to cool them before we transported. And, it, you know, it's a little bit crazy because a lot of your paramedics are very used to the load-and-go mentality that the sooner we get to the hospital, the better. Sometimes that's absolutely true. Sometimes it's not true. So we went through this educational program where it was really kind of a joint effort between the fire department and the EMS providers, and I challenged them, even in whatever situation they were in, to find three components, a basin to put somebody in, some water to put in it, and some ice to dump on top to do full-body ice water immersion. And they're like, eh, Ratcliffe, you're crazy, whatever. But uh, last summer we had a guy who uh, suffers from schizophrenia, he was off his medication. He was walking up and down one of our major highways, one of the hottest days of the year. The police encounter him uh, as, a, as a reported intoxicated person walking in the road. Well, the police quickly realize that something medically is wrong with this gentleman. I actually happened to be out running calls, and I was actually closest. And so I got there first, and I looked at this gentleman, and I said, he is having heat stroke. The EMS crew showed up. I just said the word heat stroke, and instantly they went into action. We had a core temperature done in just a few seconds. It was 108 and climbing, and the guy was starting to posture and seize. We had an engine company response, and before you knew it, they were setting up a basin with water. And actually, this was kind of fun for me. Since they knew what to do, we were about a block away from a Sefco, which is a convenience store here in Central Texas. I hit the lights and siren, pulled up into the parking lot, stole about 10 bags of ice from the Sefco, and then drove away, and we dumped all that ice in on top of the guy and had his core temperature down to about 102.5, and he was waking up within just about five to six minutes. And he had, a, he had a normal neurologic recovery and got discharged from the hospital two days later. And then I had to go back to the Sefco and pay for the ice. But Wow. That is a crazy story, man. It is. But <laughs> you just don't get to see that every day in the emergency department. That's pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, if the team hadn't done everything right for that guy or we hadn't followed what we do was good treatment, then, you know, his outcome wouldn't have been as good. So. Man, that is fantastic. And I must enter a little asterisk here that this show is not uh, sponsored by Sefco. There's no uh, 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 conflicts of interest here, so I just want to make sure that we're not sponsored by Sefco, although great place. <laughs> Could have been any, any convenience. Well, Dr. Story. Ratcliffe, thank you so much for coming on to the EM Stud podcast. I think our listeners are really going to be encouraged and challenged to look into EMS more, and maybe even a few of you may become an EMS director like Dr. Ratcliffe. So, Dr. Ratcliffe, if people want to get in touch with you, I saw on the back of one ambulance written in the dust for a good time called 254-867-5309, which is your personal cell phone. But if they don't have that, how can they reach you on Twitter? Uh, they can hit me up on Twitter at Dr. Rat, E-M-T-P, and that's D-R-R-A-T-E-M-T-P. And please, yep, hit me up, send me questions. Very good. Well, thanks again for coming on our show. As well as our uh, EM Stud listeners out there, we want to encourage you to work through this COVID crisis. 
get back into the clinical environment. Hope that your rotations go well. And we're going to be looking forward to some more podcasts and encourage you to achieve your goals of becoming an emergency physician. On behalf of my colleague, ER Dr. Nate, this is your EMED coach, Dr. Scott Weider, signing off for another edition of the EMSTED podcast. Rotate well, my friends.